when you can not only reduce the inflammation, reduce the combat, the free radicals that damage your cell and your cell membranes, but then you can also reduce your daily stress levels. Those are high impact things. So if you fit it into your lifestyle on a daily basis, you're reaping the rewards on a very compounding cadence, right? Every day. So that's what really contributes to quality and longevity of life. This is Evolve CPG's Brands for a Better World podcast, featuring purpose-driven leaders who not only believe in better, but actively pursue it. That's better products, better brands, and better leadership for a better world. Thanks to you, our listeners, this podcast is now ranked in the top 10% of all podcasts globally. Let's not stop there, though. You can help us reach more people by taking a moment to leave us a rating or review, which is critical for podcast algorithms, and by sharing your favorite episodes with your network. The more people we reach, the more good we can bring about in this world. If you work in the industry, you can also join our online community where we're going further, faster, together at community.evolvecpg.com. I'm your host, Gage Mitchell, founder and creative director of Modern Species, a sustainable brand design agency helping better brands grow and scale their impact. On this episode, we're speaking with Michael Don Hamm, co-founder and president of Wild Orchard Teas, about the roots of his passion for health, why the purity of our air, water, and food matter so much, how his teas are grown wild and regeneratively, how it's our responsibility to take care of the planet for future generations, and much more. My name is Michael Donham. I'm the co-founder and president of Wild Orchard Regenerative Teas. As reflected in the name, we are a tea company. Our teas are cultivated on a thousand acre volcanic island farm in South Korea. And they've been undergoing regenerative practices from the very beginning in the 90s. And we just launched last year here in the U.S., and we're looking to bring regenerative teas to as many regions within America and beyond as possible. Amazing. Super excited to chat with you because I'm all for team regenerative, and I love tea. I'm just constantly drinking tea. (laughs) So I'm excited to dig more into your tea and your farms and stuff. But before we do that, I'd love to understand a little bit more about what makes you tick. And as I was doing a little more research on you, I noticed that Health seems to have been a driving factor for you from an early time because you studied kinesiology and nutrition, and it seems that your entrepreneurial endeavors kind of focus on health too. So where did that passion for health come from originally? Well, I was fortunate enough to grow up maybe a couple hours north of the I-5 near where you're located up in Vancouver, Canada. And from the earliest age, I can remember a real focus on fitness. So I grew up loving activity, sports. I think we're of the last generation. I think we're similar having grown up maybe in the 80s and 90s, pre-internet age. So spending a lot of time outdoors with friends and being active. And so, as I said, very fortunate to grow up in a country that valued physical activity and the value that it brought to people's health. And so avid sports fan growing up like you just name it any sports like I don't know what sports did you enjoy growing up I played mostly soccer and hockey but being from Denver everyone had to be a Broncos fan of course so (laughs) I literally had like Broncos murals and painted in my room and stuff and followed the because it was a good time for the Broncos like Super Bowl wins and stuff so it was fun growing up in that time that era Yeah, so I played ice hockey too up until college, but I played all sports. And, you know, being an avid sports fan, you just like follow it, all the teams, all the players. I remember the Broncos days in the 80s before they hit the champion Super Bowl in the 90s. But yeah, it was a great time to grow up, right? Even back then, sports was a lot more less focused on money and fame and all these things. People did it more for the love of the sport. I think things were a lot more genuine back then. And so I always had fond memories. And so when I graduated high school and it was time to pick a major, it was just natural to kind of lean towards something like kinesiology, an area that I had passion for with my involvement with sports. And, you know, I've had a lot of great mentors since I was young. People 
who understood how the world worked, where we lived within the historical landscape, right? And really people who valued humanity and life. And so when I decided to choose my major, it was like, okay, I want to do something that's going to help people live healthier. One of my mentors, he pretty much got me to understand the key to health is really the health of the blood. It's why when we go to the doctor, they do blood tests, right? They want to check what the state of the blood is. So through nutrition, exercise, sleep, all contributors to positive longevity and quality of life. I kind of looked at everything through that lens, whether it was kinesiology or nutrition. And obviously the studying and majoring and minoring in those topics really helped mold my view on health and how to help people. That's interesting. I'm a big advocate for just general health and wellness. And I do think like a lot of it goes back to the food we put in our bodies, how much sleep we're getting, you know, physical activity, some of those core things, but I haven't thought too much about the blood. So can you go a little bit more in depth about how it kind of centers around the blood? And I imagine that's just what you're putting in your body and then the blood carries that throughout to the rest of your well, muscles. But tell me more. Exactly. So the blood, it nourishes every cell in the body. Obviously the heart is pumping the blood throughout our body. And so when you exercise or you're active, you're actually allowing the blood to reach the outermost parts of your body and you get nourishment in those areas, right? And, you know, the blood is made by the food we eat, the air we breathe, the water we drink. So if we want to maintain a healthy state of our blood, which is the primary driving factor of our overall health, then we have to be mindful of what we put in our bodies. But in this day and age, it's not just about what comes into our bodies. It's also what goes on the body and what's around our bodies. And so that's the different thing about where we are historically post-industrial revolution. We're now having to deal with major pollution, pollution of air, pollution of water. So it's not just what comes in our body anymore. It extends beyond that. Yeah, totally. I often thought like if I had the time to focus on multiple niches as a creative, I would focus on food because it's, you know, what goes in your body. But also we've done some work in personal care, like skincare stuff, which that goes on your body, like on your skin. And then I love the idea also of just doing like more sustainable products, whether that's clothing or furniture or something like that, because all those things abrade and go in the air and end up in your body through your nose or your mouth or whatever else. So, that kind of contributes to factors. And then, of course, most of our clients try to make sure we're putting fewer chemicals and less pollution into the planet, which I think also helps. But I just don't have enough time in the day to focus on all those niches. So, I default to the one where I get to eat it, uh, the food industry, because <laughs> it's a fun space to play in. But I totally hear what you're saying there. It's definitely the entire environment. Obviously, some things we have a little more control over, like sometimes what food we pick. But the air quality, it feels sometimes a little less one-to-one -one, like I can't walk around in a bubble. So it's more of like a collective thing that we have to do together, which is part of why I'm on team, team regenerative, right? It's like, how do we rebuild the environment that helps clean our air and, and makes it more habitable for us and everything else? Exactly. Exactly. So we'll talk a little bit about Wild Orchard soon, but I'd love to hear first off a little bit more about your other active venture. I, I didn't know you had this other company called Repure. Can you tell us a little bit about that business and why you decided to focus on air and water quality, which I'm guessing is a continuation of what we were just talking about? Yeah, so Repure is a healthy home operating system. And you pointed it out correctly because when we go outside of our homes, we cannot control the environmental factors, right? It's out of our hands. Like when we go walk, go for a walk in the street or travel to on business to a major city and you're walking, you can't control what you're breathing like directly. But the reason why we created Repure was to at least be able to control it and optimize indoor spaces for health in your home or your office, places that you have a say in how you want that environment to affect or interact with you and how it impacts your health. And so because air and things like water are invisible, 
No one has any clue what the state of their air is. The only way they know is if they start getting headaches or they start getting drowsy because CO2 levels are climbing or there's a lot of pollen that comes in through an open window and you start sneezing. So those are kind of areas where you can kind of feel it. But for the most part, you can have a lot of pollutants in the home and you wouldn't even know. So Repair is about putting monitoring in there, just like our bodies has sensors. We try to have the home mimic the human body in terms of sensing foreign bodies and then using smart controls to automate the remediation of pollution events. So once again, my nutrition background and kinesiology comes into play here because we've developed a knowledge base of how the body works, how the liver works, how the lungs filter out pollutants that we breathe in. And so we want the house to kind of mimic that so that our bodies are protected when we're in that environment. So it goes a lot deeper than that, but that's kind of just like a general overview. I love the idea of the monitoring because to your point, you don't really know unless, like you said, you start sneezing or something. You are the canary in the coal mine at that point. But if you can catch it before that happens, that's great. But maybe tell me a little bit more about the purification side of it. So is it like an air filter kind of thing? And then how does that tie it into the water quality as well? So I'll just address the example that you just voiced. So if the window is open, the pollen will come in on a spring day. And then you'll start sneezing because you're breathing it in, right? So we have outdoor air sensors and we have indoor air sensors. So if the outdoor sensors start picking up a rise in pollen, you'll get notified. In the future, we believe that even windows will be automated. So if the windows are open and the pollen counts start to climb up, then it'll send a signal for the window to close automatically. Things like that. The three pillars of indoor air quality are particulate. So we want to reduce particulate from being breathed in because it starts to, the smallest ones get into your bloodstream and they start inflaming the body throughout the body. So we want to prevent that. So the monitors actually show particulate levels. So when it starts going out of the green zone, It'll send a signal to run the HVAC system. When you have a high-performing filtration system there, you're actually cleaning the air throughout the house as your system is working. So that's the first pillar of air quality. Second is ventilation. You want to have outdoor air come into the house because you want oxygen and you want to reduce the CO2 levels because they have a cognitive effect. And then the third pillar of air quality is humidity control. You want to keep it somewhere in between 40 and 60% relative humidity, which is optimal for human health. So all the metrics are scientifically there, but the typical average American household, they have no idea how to keep it in the green zone. So that's what our system does. It keeps everything in the green zone just automatically in behind the scenes. And then water is the same thing. You mentioned how... There's all these toxins that go into the environment. We breathe it in. Studies show that the average American actually consumes one credit card of plastic a week because we're breathing in microplastics or consuming them through the water. So there is unbeknownst to the majority of the population, there is no such thing as safe tap water. They have microplastics, things like toxins, arsenic, lead, like throughout the country, you're If you're consuming tap water, you're drinking something that's not good for your health. So in the same way with our operating system, we want to make sure that that water is filtered so that none of those foreign contaminants or toxins are actually entering the body and having a negative impact on the blood, which is actually carrying it everywhere throughout our bodies. Wow. So your device not only monitors and regulates, but then also does some of that filtering, like you were saying, through the water? Exactly. It's pretty complex, like holistic yeah, system. Yeah, it is complex, yeah. but it's actually pretty simple too because when you look at the app, you'll see green, yellow, or red. And whenever it goes out of the green, as long as you have that hardware that can resolve that issue, it'll resolve it automatically. Nice. And you mentioned, you know, eventually windows will be smart as well and automatically open and close. So I had to just mention there's this a living building in Seattle called the Bullet Center. I believe it's called Center. But it actually has automatic opening, closing blinds and windows and all sorts of things to automatically regulate the temperature and conditions in the space and, you know, composting toilets and all sorts of stuff. It's 
more or less off grid from what I understand and just kind of operates on its own to just make sure whatever time of day or season, it just knows what to do to control the building. The only downside is that people working in the space aren't always notified ahead of time that the windows are about to open. So you're sitting there doing your work at the windows open and all of a sudden your papers just blow away because it's a little windy today or something. But So they'll have to work on a little bit of like a warning system or something like that to batten down the hatches. One solution for that are skylights. So with skylights that open automatically right now, you don't really get the wind coming the wind, into yeah. your desk. Yeah, yeah, but so that, maybe that'll be in the second version of the building. But this is kind of a big experimental building to work on more sustainable architecture. I think it was one of the first living buildings in the world, but I know there's a few other people experimenting with this. But I could 100% see what you're saying that eventually that's where all these smart home innovations are going towards is that ideally you don't have to wander around and close and open windows and check filters and check temperature is just all automatically done for you, which is brilliant. Oh, it's fun to dive a little bit more into that, but let's switch over to Wild Orchard a bit. So Wild Orchard is aptly named because it has grown wild, which I think is really fascinating. So can you tell us a little bit about how that is different from other teas and what the benefits of being grown wild are? Sure. In the late 90s, it was actually the farm is a thousand acres, as I mentioned, in Jeju Island, but it was barren. There was nothing on the land. It hadn't been touched. So it's a great candidate without any like, it was no super fun science, so to speak, with chemicals like in the soil. So it was a very clean piece of land, but nothing was really grown on it. So the decision was to plant tea seeds right? And tea seeds and transplanting trees are very different because when you plant by seed, the roots go deeper into the soil. The deeper the roots into the soil, the more nutrients from the volcanic soil are going to be pulled up into the root system. The other great thing about, and the reason why we call it wild orchard was when the trees were young, there were also weeds. So there was a battle between the weeds and the green tea plant And so the people on the farm were like, oh, my goodness, the weeds are just going to overpower the seeds before they even have a chance of growing and living and thriving. And so they had this very innovative idea to release a flock of geese. And that's why on our logo, you'll see geese, because the geese would not eat the tea tree because it was too bitter for them, but they would eat all the weeds around it. So that allowed the tea trees not only to fight with the weeds, but then allow them to overcome it to the point where a lot of the trees are even like 15 to 20 feet tall, which is very rare for a tree plant. If you Google green tea farm, you'll typically see well manicured, like they're just like bushes on the ground going up to your waist. But on our piece of land, we certainly have those kinds of trees too that are a little more cultivated and manicured, but There are a lot of them that are like 20 feet tall, right? They're grown wild. And that's why we named it wild because, you know, Gage being in the industry, especially with the population growth over the last couple hundred years, industrial revolution, the need to feed them cheaply, need to feed the population cheaply was really the advent of industrial agriculture and then chemical agriculture using pesticides, herbicides, actually destroying the soil for the purpose of more production, faster production, cheaper production. And it's done a lot of harm to our planet and we're paying the consequences today. So there's right now there's this regenerative movement, but I always tell people this is the ancient way of farming. It really shouldn't have a special name to it. It's like, it's the way nature intended for us to obtain our food and our crops, right? So to me, it's kind of like backwards that we have to give it a new term and educate people again. (laughs) But that's why it's so important as we build a brand. It's actually a way of teaching people history and what they need to think about when they consider how to feed their families in a healthy way that extends beyond just their family to the greater society and the greater world in a positive way. I love that. And you reminded me of one of my favorite rants, which is <laughs> sounds like you 100% agree, which is I feel like we got it backwards when we started labeling 
organic as different from quote unquote conventional and that conventional made it sound like that's the way we've always been growing food. But in reality, it should have been just farming and then chemical farming. Like why did, why did organic have to get the weird label that everyone was creeped out about because it made it sound different. And same thing with regenerative again, like throughout all of history up until whatever the forties to sixties or something when chemical agriculture became popularized, all farms, all agriculture, everything on the planet was regenerative and organic. But it wasn't until that time that we started doing things in this quote-unquote conventional way, which is chemical agriculture, that things changed. But now, of course, like you said, we have to label the going back to the way things should be as organic or regenerative, which is just ridiculous. So, I feel like we wouldn't necessarily be as much in this place where we have to educate people on the benefits of organic and regenerative if we had been smarter about what we called quote unquote conventional agriculture when we started labeling things like that. That should have just been from day one labeled as chemical agriculture and let's move on, right? <laughs> hey, Gage, let's start a movement to change those tags from <laughs> conventional to chemical. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I usually try to like switch it instead of like conventional, I'll change it in like whatever I'm writing. But of course, I'm not like New York Times or whoever has the more influence. So, but I agree. Let's start reversing that because it's just ridiculous. With that said, I love the story of the how the wild tea came to be. Who was it that had control of this island and decided it was smart to plant tea? And was that just for like an environmental kind of thing? Or was there a dream of turning it into a brand at some point, a tea company? Definitely. Uh, the goal was to create world-class teas and do it in a way that was scalable, which is why, I mean, 1,000 acres is not big in terms of other farms that are tens of thousands of acres big, but it's still not small either, right? So one of the things was the farm operator also has tea farms in other parts of Korea that like traditional tea growing regions, and they would win all the domestic awards. And so when we partnered with them about four years ago, the first thing we did was, okay, let's see how these stack up against the world international landscape, right? And that's when we started entering all the major, there are four major tea competitions in the world. It's like the tennis Grand Slam. So there's the US, French, Australian, and the UK. So we just started entering like what we thought were our best teas into those competitions. And in the last couple of years, after entering all four, we won more than any other tea brand, 17 medals. So that gave us like a huge boost in confidence to say that typically people will think if it's organic, it cannot be like the highest level, right? But if you think about it, organic or regenerative organic, you're really focused on the health of the soil, growing topsoil, have a root system that's pulling the nutrients up at a better rate or capacity than non-organic or regenerative. So healthy soil should equate to healthy plants, to healthy people, and then healthy planet. And so there's no reason why a crop that's generated or cultivated regeneratively cannot be on the world stage as the best in that category. So we're so excited to be able to be in a position to do that. That's amazing. But out of curiosity, you said that conventional knowledge or wisdom would say that organic couldn't be award-winning tea, or at least in the industry. Where did that idea come from? Because I feel like tea, much like wine or anything else, is about terroir, right? It's about the soil. It's about the health of the environment. So where did that idea come from? It is. But if you look at all the top award-winning wines or olive oils, now we're seeing more and more organic brands or products, right? But even like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, all of the winners for these categories, whether it's wine, chocolate, coffee, you would never see any organic brand win it, right? So I don't know if it's because they just never entered or... My hunch would be more that it's not the historically good wineries that were immediately converting to organic because... They don't want to break a 200-year <laughs> tradition or something like that, right? So they just kind of keep doing things the way they're doing, don't fix what's not broken. Whereas maybe new wineries or newly planted vineyards or or something like that might have been more likely to make the transition to organic. So therefore, it's, it's probably, my guess would be, it would be more about the history of, I don't know a ton about wine, but from what I know, I think it's like 
how old the vines are is also a contributing factor, right? So like newer vines just aren't going to produce as much or as good a quality of grapes and so on and so forth. So I feel like it's just a matter of people need to convert to organic and then give it time and get the right crops and age your wine enough time and so on and so forth to make it good. But I don't know if tea has those same limitations. So, uh, well, obviously you proved that it doesn't because <laughs> you came out swinging and won all the awards. So anyway, I was just curious about that because it seems like a strange thing to say, but I, I see what you're saying that not enough organic brands were winning, but that's not to say that organic is bad. It's to say that maybe the right vineyards or whatever hadn't uh, exactly. jumped into organic yet. But that flows down to the consumer consciousness too, because if they see it, then there's nothing organic, then they can assume that organic is a lower quality. It's possible, right? Yeah. And I have seen, at least in the wine industry, that biodynamic is a little bit more popular than organic. I don't know. Is that the same kind of thing in tea? Do you see a lot of biodynamic in tea? No, not a lot of biodynamic. Definitely a lot of organic, especially the last decade. A lot of tea growers have gotten the USDA organic certification. Yeah. So speaking of which, though, you were the first regenerative organic certified tea, right? First of all, what drove you to go deeper down that organic path? And also, do you foresee or have you seen others starting to jump on the regenerative bandwagon as well? Yeah, I mean, the farm itself was, they're certainly pioneers in Korea. They were the first to have a USDA auditor come in and they were the first to get the USDA organic certification back in the early 2000s. And so back then, regenerative organic certification wasn't around. And so when a few years before COVID, it started, it was started by like stalwarts in the organic industry, like Rodale Institute, Dr. Bronner's, Nature's Path, you know, people who are so focused on the essence and the importance of organic, not only in terms of health, but environment. And they were a little disappointed in the way that the NOP standards were being watered down, like even allowing aquaponics to get organic certified now, right? Something in the original charter where they said that you can only get certified organic with crops that were grown in soil, like in the ground. And now it's deviating to like, okay, now we're going to let aquaponics industry get certified. So it's a lot of disillusionment, like based on the original intent of setting up the National Organic Program. So that's why this regenerative organic certification came to be really focusing on the highest standard for soil health, animal welfare, and farm worker fairness. So really holistic measure of agriculture and where we need to go. And so when we were introduced to that, and we looked into it and we were like, yeah, this is certainly an area that aligns with our values. And I mean, we didn't know it was called regenerative, but we've been doing these things like, you know, cover cropping, no-till, like biodynamic, integrating livestock, all these principles of regenerative, the farm has been doing since the onset, right? And so let's give it a shot. And we had an auditor finally agree to fly to South Korea last May. And we we're very happy because his whole report showed that our farm was at the highest level in pretty much every category. So once again, a great validation and a testament to the farmers. And that gives us confidence when we go out to the marketplace or talk to people about the teas that you can really have peace of mind with our teas because they are the purest and the cleanest you'll find anywhere. That's amazing. I love that. And Speaking of pure and clean, I think I also read something on your website about being, or maybe it was a review or something that I read, something about being like washed four times and so on and so forth. But beyond, you know, we've talked a bit about the soil and and being wild and organic and regenerative, but like, is there anything unique about the way you process the tea afterwards that also makes it of higher quality? As far as I know, there's no one that washes it four times like us. And the reason we do that is we talked about it before. So using regenerative practices, you're optimizing the nutrient density from the soil down, right? From the rootstock and the root system into the plant. But the other aspect is there's major pollution in Asia, right? Around the world. Like it's not just Asia, it's even in America, right? But these particulates fall onto the crop. 
And if you just process it and you pluck it and you process it and then you put it in a bag with all those particulates, it's almost like you're introducing chemicals or toxins in our product. So that's the extreme to where our farmers take it. They don't want anything on the plant that should be foreign when it comes into the body, only the good stuff, right? So you see a lot of marketing clean, pure, but if you really look into it, like how many are actually taking into consideration the yellow dust from China or the particulate or the feces from birds that may come onto the plant and actually wash it and make sure that those are not factors when the consumer, you know, enjoys the cup of tea. There are not many places that do that. So that's really a testament to the farmers, as I mentioned before. That's really interesting. And it feels like it's something that maybe historically wasn't needed, but as we've polluted this planet more and more, maybe it's more needed, right? So that makes a lot of sense. And I almost wonder if other food types need to follow that same practice, by which I mean, there's been some articles out about chocolate and the levels of heavy metals in it, right? And some of those articles say, well, some of these metals are just naturally occurring, come up through the soil, and it's nothing to really worry about. But some of them get into higher levels than you'd like. And they were breaking down where that happens. And for some of the metals, I guess they accumulate also on like the outside of the chocolate cacao pod or something like that. And then and it becomes intensified when it's fermented and or dried or something like that because of some of the particulate in the air as well as is contributing to it or there's something having to do with air quality plus soil. But if cacao farmers are, are growing sustainably or regenerative, like you're not always going to be able to control all the metals in the soil or something like that. But maybe if they can at least do like a washing process or something like that to eliminate the particulate in the air, maybe that would actually help with the situation. Gage, I think the future of transparency in our industry, we hear a lot about transparency and consumers are demanding more and more transparency. And a lot of it, social media, that's why we put a lot of the scenes of our farm and what it looks like and the biodynamic nature, the integration of wildlife. We actually show those things on our social media. We think that's one level of transparency. But in the future, the ultimate transparency will be having lab tests done and making those open for people to see exactly what those lab test results are. For example, the amount of heavy metals in that food product. And I think that's what's going to keep everyone honest. And people can't work around that with marketing. It's because it's fact, right? And then when you add things like putting that on the blockchain, you know, making it accessible at the retailer level, supermarket with a QR code or something, I think things will, I don't know what form it'll take, but something to that effect, I think, in the next decade or so. Yeah, I've been seeing those movements start with some clients and some podcast guests just talking a lot about their going above and beyond on testing for just about everything, but especially like glyphosate is a big issue lately. So I definitely agree with that. And it reminds me of the old saying of what gets measured gets improved. So it's not just about the transparency per se of saying like, here's our proof of how clean our product is. But it's also about if you're not measuring, how do you know whether or not there's a problem, right? So again, back to these chocolate companies, like it's, they're probably all now that this kind of is out in the news, all these chocolate companies, I'm sure are going to start measuring more often. And then therefore they can figure out the practices to improve it so that when they are more transparent, they can feel good about the numbers they're putting out there. Right. So I feel like I know it's these better for the world brands that are already having to pay extra for certifications or go the extra mile to grow things the right way or not cut corners on food quality or safety or anything like that. There's already a lot of burden on companies trying to make products the better way when you're competing against people cutting all the corners and selling it cheaper. So this like testing and measuring stuff feels like yet another one of those burdens they're going to have to take on, but it just feels like that's where things are going. And my hope would be that government subsidies and nonprofits and foundations, et cetera, can help offset some of this burden that Better for the World brands have to go through to make it easier for them, but also to incentivize other companies to start following best practices. Because right now, most government subsidies and so on and so forth go towards giant chemical agriculture companies, industrial, and <laughs> industrial agriculture, et cetera. 
which basically incentivizes doing things the wrong way and helps make that cheaper, which then influences consumer behavior because consumers, of course, are going to buy the cheaper thing often, right? So I feel like if we can fix where some of the subsidies and government support and other things go, hopefully we can incentivize more brands to become better for the world and do the right thing. That's why our audience today can look at the farm bill that's going around focusing on regenerative. Those are things that are going to move the needle. And also the biggest needle mover is consumers supporting the brands that are doing it the right way, right? And then that allows everything costs expenses to go down and hopefully overall the prices start to go down. But it's a combination of all of those things. So yeah, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> we got our work cut out for us, but so far yeah. at least the consumers seem to be overwhelmingly coming onto the side of better for the world brands. There's just sometimes the obstacle of, I think it's something like 80% or more people want to buy better for the world or healthier, whatever brands, but there's still a little bit of a barrier, obviously, in price. And that depends on, obviously, the individual consumer's economic situation, but also the global economic situation of recessions and stuff. If times are bad, people get a little stingier and buy the cheaper product. But if we can do things like, you know, like you're saying, farm bills and other things that can level the playing field a little bit more so that the people making bad products have to actually charge a real price for that product instead of a subsidized price. And then the people making good products can actually charge a more reasonable price because they don't have to foot the bill for doing things the right way. That would be amazing. Well, Gage, I, so just going back on that. So for example, we know regenerative is going to result in a more nutrient-dense product or tea that's going to be healthier for people. So we do want to get lab tests and know exactly what the catechin levels are, polyphenols, L-theanine, and almost keep everyone else honest by doing that. Because if people start to see the test, and it may be twice the cost of a conventional brand, but if it shows that the nutrient density or the antioxidants is five times more, then if you just do the math, it makes sense, right? It's about value. People do not really value shop anymore. It's really about price and marketing. They go there. But if anyone just thought logically about it and they were told, okay, this has five times the amount of nutrient density as this one, but it only costs twice as more. If you just bring that logic to someone, most people will understand and say, okay, I'm going to buy this one then, right? But that just isn't like the norm right now. <laughs> I know, yeah. And it probably depends on culture and individuals and stuff too. Like for me, I like to buy higher quality, even if it's more expensive. And then I sacrifice in other parts of my life to be able to afford the things that fuel my body, like better food, right? And then I just won't have as many stuff or as big of a house or as cool of a car in exchange. But some people value those other things, the, the fancy car, the cool house, the fancy trips, the whatever, and they don't pay as much attention to what they put in their body. So, But that's changing. I think COVID has this pandemic has shifted more people into thinking about their health and wellness. And so. the younger, younger generation are also more mindful, I think, of those things. Right. So we hope that that'll continue. But speaking of health, obviously, you know, we talked about why you like nutrition and health so much with your background in kinesiology and such, but what drew you into tea in particular? How did you get involved in Oh, this so I never drank much tea growing up, right? Right now I'm like, yeah, well, I drank like non-true tea, so non-Camellia sinensis tea. So like barley tea, it's more traditional to Korean families. I remember drinking those types of teas, but not so much more than that. But about 20 years ago, that's when I first was introduced to this tea or the farm that we're actually partners with now. And I would drink it because it was good. I knew the quality. I even visited the farm 20 years ago. So I was very impressed by it. Still not an avid tea drinker, maybe once a month or something. But it was about four or five years ago when, you know, I have several co-founders, but we just sat down and said, hey, listen, there's a great opportunity. Why don't we talk to the farm and let's introduce this tea to the rest of the world because it's such high quality. It's hidden. It's a hidden gem. And that's when I officially, I was like, okay, if I do this business, 
I got to know that. Yeah, I got to. So from that day on, September of 2018, I started drinking two liters a day. So ever since then, I've been drinking. And I got to tell you, I've never been sick. I have more energy than a decade ago. I'm more focused. I have a higher capacity to focus on work throughout the day through the L-theanine and amino acids in the tea, mixing with the caffeine. And I recommend it to everyone because of the huge benefits that I've received from it. Well, that sounds like a glowing review to get on, what did you say, two liters a day of tea? Two liters a day. <laughs> Out of curiosity, I know we earlier talked about how health is a holistic thing, you know, your air quality, your sleep and other things. So, that's an interesting case study of if you started drinking tea and had all those benefits. Can you say if you also made any other adjustments in your lifestyle around that time that also might be contributing or, or do you feel like it's a pretty pure like black and white, like I introduced tea and that's the only thing I changed and I feel so much better. No, at the time I also outfitted my whole house with the best air quality systems and water quality systems because the, the main crossover between my two businesses is tea requires water and water needs to be clean. So that's like the direct overlap, right? But those are the two major things that I've implemented in my life that I think both have had a tremendous impact on health. And I mean, we've had a lot of projects, right? So I know that either one of them will have a huge impact on health. But when you put two together, when you add exercise, when you add good sleep, it's just going to compound, right, in terms of the health benefits. Yeah, that makes sense. And a good pitch for both of your businesses, which I mean, you know, like you've got to, again, back to the holistic health, you can't just eat something better if your air quality is crap or you're not sleeping well or whatever. Like I've seen a lot of people jumping on the no alcohol movement as well. There's a lot more energy around that. And often people report all these uh, lists of benefits like sleeping better and more energy and so on and so forth, similar to what you're reporting. But I think that's not just the no alcohol. It's just maybe like because they were drinking too much alcohol, they weren't sleeping well. And it's really probably more to do with the sleeping better that like affects everything else. But, you know, it's it all works as a system. Like our bodies are a complex biological system that we barely understand <laughs> right now, even though we think our science is so amazing these days. I'm pretty sure in 100 years, we're going to laugh at our science that we have now. They are so complex that it's hard to break it down into like, oh, if I take this one supplement, everything is going to change because it's, again, it's about the water, it's about the air, it's about the sleep, it's about all sorts of other things, right? There's no silver bullet and a lot of companies try to market it. I can't even say the tea is a silver bullet. It can play a major factor in a person's lifestyle to make it a healthy lifestyle, but it's not the only thing. You got to combine it with many, many other things. And the great thing about tea is... Okay, so there's all this environmental impact from pollution and processed foods coming into our body that are wrecking our health. But the other thing that really has a huge negative impact on our health is daily stress levels. We're more stressed than at any point in history. The science and the research show that. But the great thing about tea is when you have tea, it just lets you just relax, enjoy it, and you can actually invite a friend and have a nice conversation over it. So you're not only putting nourishing components into your body, like antioxidants and so forth, minerals and vitamins and nutrients, but there's an opportunity to connect with people through that activity, right? And when you can not only reduce the inflammation, reduce the combat, the free radicals, that damage your cell and your cell membranes, but then you can also reduce your daily stress levels. Those are high impact things. So if you fit it into your lifestyle on a daily basis, you're reaping the rewards on a very compounding cadence, right? Every day. So that's what really contributes to quality and longevity of life. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It reminds me of a couple things. One was, I can't remember where this study was, but Someone pointed it out to me at one point that said they did a, some research on, you know, the efficacy of supplements and they found that there was like, you know, varying degrees of like efficacy across supplements. And well, that's part of it. But what they did find is they said what the real outcome was that if you're the type of person who takes supplements, <laughs> you're more likely to be healthy. But the supplements themselves aren't always 
you know, effective because like you said, bioavailability and it's about the combination of what else you're eating and so on and so forth, right? But the type of person who takes supplements is the type of person who cares about their health and is doing things to improve it. So, their result was, well, we can't really tell you which ones to take, but just be the type of person that would take supplements, which is to your point, it's about the rituals. It's about the lifestyle. Yes, obviously, tea has a lot of uh, health benefits and so do other kind of superfoods and so on and so forth. But being the type of person who cares about your health and is paying attention to these things will have massive benefits beyond the individual things that you're taking. And the other thing it reminded me of is that book Blue Zones, I believe it's called, that kind of outlines the cultures with the longest living, healthiest people on the planet and tried to figure out what the commonality was. And some of it is just like spending time with friends and doing like small health things like going for a walk each day or doing some gardening, just like a little bit of physical activity and kind of what you eat and stuff. But it was just about the lifestyle itself is kind of what's healthy, whereas most modern cultures are full of stress and anxiety and pollutants and we're cut off from people physically because we spend all of our time online or in front of a computer or something like that. So, we're doing all the things wrong. <laughs> yeah. But so, to your point, like even if the tea itself isn't the silver bullet, including like healthy rituals like tea in your life will have a ripple effect out to all other aspects of your life. So, you and I, I think, first met through the Organic Marketing Association. Dennis, uh, which, our friend yeah, Dennis. <laughs> the ultimate connector in organic, Dennis, which is great to be kind of involved in that with you. But I also just noticed that you're a 1% for the Planet member too, which my company is also 1% for the Planet. So, why did you decide to sign up for that commitment? Well, part of the regenerative organic certification, one of the pioneers was also Patagonia Provisions. And Ishwanard, I'm one of his biggest fans, especially the way that he runs business. It's not for the sole purpose of making money. It's how to send a message, how to impact people positively, and how to get people to think about how to take care of the environment, right? This planet that we share. And so he created the 1% for the planet. So I've always been a big fan of his. And when we started the businesses, we were like, okay, we got to, as part of our values and our mission, we have to not only impact people in our own way with our teas, but also contribute to the effort expended by other organizations that have similar values as us. And being a part of 1%, as you know, allows us to identify organizations, what they're focused on. It can be the oceans, it can be the air, it can be nature, it can be farming. It's so many things, right? Climate justice, equity. And it just lends a great opportunity to meet others and find ways to collaborate. Because in the end, it's the one plus one equals three kind of uh, philosophy, like Instead of us just doing what we're doing in our own silo, finding ways to synergize our efforts through other like-minded people and organizations is really the main reason why we decided to join that right when we started the company. Nice. Okay. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think one thing that he likes to say is that it's kind of your planet tax, so to speak. You know, we pay our business taxes or state taxes or income taxes, et cetera. 1% for the planet is the, the planet tax because we all rely on the planet. We live on this thing, but also our businesses operate within it and use the resources. So he considered it like this obligatory planet tax that you should pay if you're operating a business on the planet. So that's one interesting way to look at it is it just should be like something every company is doing because you're using resources. For me, I think it was more about we were already donating and doing different things, but we didn't have some sort of third party checking it, verifying, kind of like what you're saying that more food companies need to test the for heavy metals and glyphosate and other things. It felt like that for a service business as well as like, you know, we say we're doing all these things, but nobody's testing and verifying and whatever. So that's part of why we got B Corp certified and 1% for the planet and carbon neutral is just you know, we want to do things the right way and we think we're doing things the right way, but it's nice to have a framework to improve upon that, but also to have somebody check your math and verify that you're doing it. So I love that. So as we start to wrap up this chat here, I'd love to just, you know, since you're such a big health advocate and have multiple companies that help benefit people's health, what do you feel like the future of health looks like? 
Well, the future of health right now, I'm excited because especially the younger generation coming up, they really seem to care about the future of our existence, shall I say, <laughs> right? What the next generation, how we leave everything for the next generations. We have to lead by example. Like I mentioned in the beginning, Gage, you and I are, are probably one of the last generations pre-internet and we've benefited from you know, growing up in the middle of nature and when life was a lot simpler. And every generation now and moving forward, they're, they're not going to have that unless we make drastic changes, right? So as you namely titled modern species, right? We have to figure out how to interact and, and make life better for everybody. And in the end, we talked about stress and everything moving faster now than ever before with technology. But I think the biggest travesty of that is people don't have time to stop and think about who they are, their place in the world. They don't even look back at history and what the future deserves or what we need to do. And I think through whatever we're doing, whether it's our companies, our food, or our environmental efforts, that's the number one goal, helping people to frame life for what it is that values other people regardless of differences being able to argue but have peace with other people right? just these simple things right and obviously food and all the things we're talking about are all part of that but that's the essence right it's man to man people to people that's the essence i think of what we're all trying to make impact on while we do our respective, like run our respective companies and stuff. So I think the more people that can carry on and engage in this type of conversation, spanning different ages and cultures, I think it'll uh, provide more hope for the future. I love it. That's a beautiful way to wrap up. So I just want to say thank you for kind of taking the lead on some of these initiatives like organic certification, regenerative organic, you know, wild tea, healthier food, healthier air and water quality, etc. It's just, I'm grateful for people like you out there doing the hard work to hopefully change culture back to a healthier level that we need to get back to for future generations, like you're saying, but also for us right now on this planet, like there's people that can benefit it from it now, but it's also about planting these seeds to use the tea analogy, planting these seeds that will grow deep roots and benefit future generations, right? So the more we can do now to plant those deep roots, the better future generations will be. So thanks for leading the journey on that and for doing what you can do with your time here on this earth to make the world a better place. Thank you, Gage. And you've been doing it for over a decade too, I know. And I certainly regard you as a collaborator and partner. So looking forward to future conversations and being able to work more closely together. Yeah, sounds good. We'll keep fighting the good fight together and find other ways to support each other along the way. Love it. Great. Thanks, Gabe. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Wild Orchard or Repure, go to wildorchard.com and repure.io. For more about Michael, search Michael D. Ham on LinkedIn. Subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel for more innovator interviews, expert advice, and leadership discussions. If you like this episode, leave a heart, thumbs up, or review, and share it with your colleagues. As an ever-evolving show, we also love feedback, so send us ideas for who we should talk to next to evolve at modernspecies.com. And of course, if you work in the industry, come join our community at community.evolvecpg.com, and we'll go further, faster, together.